On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Quick look at the front pages of this morning's newspapers. We'll start with the Business Post uh, today. New oversight body planned for Ukrainian refugees after NGO criticism. The government, we are told, is to establish a new structure to oversee the housing of Ukrainian refugees following complaints from non-governmental organisations about a lack of coordination and gaps in the current plan, the Business Post has learned. A group of the country's most senior civil servants from the departments dealing with the influx of Ukrainian people fleeing Russia's invasion is now working on proposals for a new structure which are expected to be brought to Cabinet in the coming weeks. The plan currently being considered is to set up a new structure which will include refugee support groups and community representatives in the official coordination process for the first time. It comes amid increasing concerns at government level about the ability to provide medium and long-term accommodation for refugees arriving in Ukraine and a looming shortfall of beds for new arrivals. More on that on the front page of the Sunday Times in just a second. Uh, but also on the front page of the Business Post, you will be aware of the reporting the Business Post has done in the last couple of months about um, taped conversations of meetings within the, H- uh, the Department of Health about some of the seeming dysfunction on the face of it that that has highlighted. Uh, we learned today in the front page of the Business Post that Michael McGrath questioned Stephen Donnelly on the Department of Health's management of the HSE in the wake of those revelations earlier this year. The Minister for Public Expenditure wrote a letter seeking clarity from the Minister for Health the week after a report on the details of a meeting of officials in the department which outlined serious concerns about financial management at the HSC. In the letter, dated February the 16th, McGrath sought clarity on key areas of the HSC's finances. Donnelly did not respond to the letter, a spokesman for McGrath's department said. A spokesperson for the Minister for Health has not explained why that is the case. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times uh, more on the Ukrainian story as I mentioned uh, the government has identified 100 unused properties including former convents and hospitals that could house up to 4,000 Ukrainian refugees within weeks but at the same time fears are growing that the state is struggling to find long term accommodation for those fleeing the Russian invasion uh, meanwhile a poll for the Sunday Times shows that the public support for a cap to be put on the number of refugees uh, coming to Ireland. The, the Behaviour and Attitude Survey for today's Sunday Times finds that three out of five people that believe that there should be a cap on the number of people coming here from Ukraine, while two out of five say that there should not be. Uh, the BNA poll found that of those who wanted a cap, roughly one in three felt that it should be set at 20,000. That's a figure which has already been exceeded. Around one in four felt that it should be set between 20,000 and 40,000, which is where we are now. And around 11% wanted a cap of up to 60,000. Um, following on from the Business Post story, by the way, the Sunday Times also says that Dara O'Brien has asked councils to identify land which has not already been earmarked for social housing, uh, which can now be uh, put aside for new developments he will use emergency powers to flash track planning permission for those uh, territories uh, the Mail on Sunday uh, state to fund IVF treatments from next year the government says it will fund IVF treatment for couples who struggle to have children from next year the Mail on Sunday can reveal Ireland is the only country in the EU that doesn't publicly fund IVF treatment but Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has confirmed writing in today's Mail on Sunday that the coalition is advancing legislation that will pave the way for state funded treatment in 2023 um, but we'll finish with the front page of the Sunday Independent two interesting stories the first of which is that Stephen Donnelly and his top civil servant Robert Watt are refusing to appear before an Oireachtas committee investigating the now abandoned secondment of Tony Houlihan to Trinity College. They've written to the Oireachtas Finance Committee saying that neither the minister nor his officials are in a position to attend its proposed meeting about that this coming Wednesday. Uh, the minister spokesperson did not uh, explain why that was the case. It is worth noting that there are multiple Oireachtas committees intending to investigate that so maybe it's a case of uh, those officials deciding to attend one rather than the other. Um, but the final one which of course is a story which is across many of the front pages today 
which is about the referral to the DPP uh, of a file about Leo Varadkar sharing a confidential GP document uh, in 2019 when he was Taoiseach. Um, the Sun Independent has an advance on that story which says that the Director of Public Prosecutions is highly unlikely to direct whether Leo Varadkar should face criminal charges before December when he is due to become Taoiseach. Uh, security sources point to the size of the file as one indicator that it will take the DPP far in excess of nine months to make a decision on the highly complicated matter. Spokesperson for the Guardi said that there was no recommendation one way or another on whether Leo Varadkar or Dr Matthew O'Toole, the recipient of the document, should face any charges. Instead, they left the decision up to the DPP. But the Garda file over the leak runs into hundreds of pages, it is understood. Dr O'Toole is under the same level of scrutiny as Mr Varadkar. Um, given the size of the Garda file, uh, one source told the paper, the amount of evidence and witness statements, it does not seem realistic that the DPP will have reached a decision by December. In instances where senior Gardaí contact the DPP to inquire about the status of a file, the state prosecutor always gives the same response. Do you want a correct decision or a quick decision? The source said. Uh, all of which would be very significant because it is eight months until Leo Varadkar is due to once again resume the office of Taoiseach. Uh, we're joined in studio by Aoife Barry, who's assistant news editor at the journal.ie and by Fionnán Sheehan, who is Ireland editor at the Ireland Irish Independent. Uh, Fiona, it, it would be, we should probably say this straight off the bat, it would be out of character for a DPP decision to take so long to process. If you go look at the statistics, uh, a lot of cases are processed very quickly. In fact, some of them are done within two weeks. But I, I dare Gavin, say... I dare where, say, where did you get that notion from? <laughs> well, Is it because the Fine Gael have been briefing it, spinning it and <sighs> twisting it like mad well, it has certainly for been the last 24 hours? It has hours. certainly been sent around quite a bit. My by, phone by, is broken to so many copies of page <laughs> well, 20 of someone, the DPP's uh, report. It was sent from, to me, know. it was sent to the station, it was sent to the news. Yeah from here in News Talk as well. Uh, but what I was going to say is that although it is the case that most cases are disposed of within uh, four weeks and certainly within three to six months of being received by the DPP, that they wouldn't often be as politically sensitive or seemingly as mammoth as this one, given that the file runs to hundreds of pages and it's taken this long to actually put together. Oh, and and in very often you'd have uh, files sent to the DPP with a recommendation um, where it would be more more clear cut as well. So would that usually be the case that they would be sent in with a no, the, not, the guards think you should do this or shouldn't? Not not always. Uh, there there are obviously cases where it it is left up to the clearly to the it's up to the DPP anyway. But mm. the, the guardie would not process a, a recommendation. But in 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 most of your run in the mill cases, uh, file goes to the DPP with a recommendation mm. attached, and the DPP makes the formal. Uh, decision there and puts, mm. puts the, the case together obviously so, are, so are, are in this we to case read we have no recommendation then, if there is no recommendation are we to read into that that it is so sensitive that the guards are taking hands off or that the guards don't believe there is a case to prosecute no well it, it, there still has to be a threshold to send a, a file they didn't come back and say look there's nothing here at all mm. really lads uh, so the investigation uh, has been so thorough that they've, they've put together uh, this file uh, gone on for what the best part of 18, 18 yeah. months now yeah uh, it was uh, at, Halloween at 2020 the, the day the Village Obviously, Magazine published this there was pressure on, on the Gardaí and they have now passed that pressure on to the Director of Public Prosecution so mm. uh, it is now the case that the, the clock is is ticking down on whether the, the DPP can come up with a decision before the end of the year based upon the, the statistics in the annual report of yeah. 2020. So, so 50, 56% of cases uh, are, the, a DPP direction is issued uh, in 56% of cases between zero and two weeks. Between two and four weeks, there's another 16%. Another yeah. 16% are dealt with within three months. Another 6% are dealt with within six months. So basically, if yeah. you add all of that together, you'd be looking at 88% of cases being disposed of within six months. This is an exceptional case. 
Mm. So even in, even in even in those cases, there are a couple of percentage points uh, where even 2019 and 2018, you had within six months, 96, 99%. This is not like any other case that's arriving on the DPP's yeah. desk. And of course, effectively, even if it was disposed of within six months, if the DPP issued a direction, the direction could be go to trial. Yeah, and how how long could that yeah. subsequently uh, take from there? So there's a lot of uh, considerations to bear to bear in mind here because there are deep political implications on foot of what the, the mm. DPP decides here. Nobody is questioning the, the independence of the DPP, but you know the the office just as much as, as the guards would be would be aware that the decision here could determine who be, who is the next Taoiseach or mm. is not the next Taoiseach because. If a decision is taken to bring forward charges, then you have to see: is there actually time to do this before the before December, um, or does it drag on beyond that? And then there is a, an internal political decision for Fine Gael to make about who they nominate mm. for Taoiseach come December. Uh, and indeed for the other uh, coalition partners as well. Uh, the Sunday Independent today quoting uh, Mihal Martin previously who said that he had no issue with it but a spokesperson for Eamon Ryan last night would not be drawn uh, on all of that. Eamon Ryan is with us later on. He's in a head-to-head debate with Matt Carthy about the government's proposed ban on the sale of turf so we will press Eamon Ryan at that point about his stance on all of this. Uh, but it is politically, Aoife Barry, it is of huge significance as to how quickly this can all be done. Yeah and I think the fact that like this is coming out now at this point with months to go and this kind of warning that's coming from security sources or unnamed people that you know this file is really big it could take a long time to go through it um, you know puts pressure on the DPP I don't know how much attention the DPP is going to be paying to you know articles about the decisions the DPP makes um, <laughs> generally you know I mean yeah. presumably not <laughs> paying attention The DPP is waking up this morning and going oh my god it yeah, turns out I, I take quite a long time Exactly yeah. I, better, I better you know speed up my really important work here so I mean the pressure really then is you know it's kind of um, making a point towards Leo Radker where like I you think that things are going to be okay for you stepping into this role again towards the end of the year but actually don't forget that this big thing is hanging over you and we know that it's going to take a long time and also we know like Fionn was saying it's not like that decision can be made quickly because of the kind of political sensitivities around it um, but also if the decision was made quickly and the decision was for example don't go to trial then there would be questions no doubt asked mm. about how come they took only two months to make this decision so yeah. you're kind of damned if you do you're damned if you don't um, but I do think it is interesting it's kind of you know raising a flag and saying listen Leo we're watching how long this is taking don't get too comfortable presuming that when you get to December everything's going to be fine and in the background Fine Gael is going to have to be maybe preparing for a decision that it doesn't want to be made made mm. by the DPP but I mean Leo Ragger has been very confident the whole time that he's done nothing wrong Um you know, the question, the law that it's all kind of coming under is to do with corruption. So he's very confident that, you know, he might have made a bad decision in terms of passing over the file, but he didn't make a corrupt decision. And he's very confident that he'll be able to continue as normal. So whether or not, you know, his belief comes true, we will soon find out. But I mean, I'd be more confident, you know, knowing that a DPP is making an informed decision going through that big file and taking their time that it needs to be taken, Mm. uh, considering all of the factors that are in play here. Uh, It did take a long time for the investigation to take place, which shows the complexity the, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What is, is being yes, because uh, this exploded here. into the public realm on Halloween 2020, and we're now at the very tail end of April 2022. Yeah. So it's been 18 months getting yeah. to this point. And given that the, the key witnesses, I mean, the, what what was being investigated was was quite clear. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the key witnesses were cooperating. Um, so in that regard, it it was it was relatively clear cut. So you, one would imagine that the length of time that the, the investigation took is is an indication of how complicated uh, this case is. Mm. Um, it, we probably should explain, but for people who are, are maybe a little bit mystified as to, to what the process of all of this is, what what is at, at, at issue here is 
um, a suggestion of a breach of the Corruption Offences Act. And what that basically means is that the act of sharing this document uh, with the NAGP, uh, whether it was done for completely legitimate reasons, albeit casually, as Leo Varadkar has portrayed, or whether there was an intention to confer an advantage on the NAGP, which would be an offence under the Corruption Offences Act. But of course, it is very difficult to get into the mind of somebody to know that for certain. Um, but it is worth mm. stressing, <clears throat> Fiona, that there are there are three possible outcomes uh, aside from not knowing how long the DPP might take the DPP could direct that there is nothing to prosecute here clean bill of health all fine um, the DPP could indicate that yes this is, there is something to prosecute and that has complications because will it be disposed of by December and the, the mysteries that that poses the DPP could also indicate as happens in around 2% of cases that it shouldn't be prosecuted in the public interest in that there may be something to see here but that it is not of public benefit to prosecute it which only happens in around 2% of cases, so we don't know whether that could be exercised in this case, but it would make for a, a kind of almost like a Schrodinger's charge. And an, an un- <clears throat> any of the scenarios you're, you're presenting there are uncomfortable for, for Fine Gael. Mm. Uh, in a way, it, it's, a, it's a bit of an artificial uh, construct at the moment in terms of, of people saying... Well, if a decision hasn't been taken by December, then does he become Taoiseach mm. or not? If this is hanging over him, it, it's hanging over him now. He's yeah. the he's the deputy leader uh, of the uh, of, of the government, so it shouldn't even though he's been convicted of nothing. Yeah, uh, but so therefore, why does it matter whether he becomes Taoiseach in December or not? If this matter is is still hanging yeah. over him, it's the same <clears> as the position he's in now. But that's politics mm. uh, for you. Michal but Martin. if they've already decided, though, that it is tenable to remain as Fine Gael leader and as Taunashta while you have the prospect of a charge coming, yeah. then this, in that sense, then doesn't actually change anything. But politically it does because of the, the perception of making somebody Taoiseach while the prospects of, it, of a charge is still, is still hanging over him. I mean, Michal Martin will be loyal to to Leo Varadkar up until the point where Michal Martin won't be loyal to Leo Varadkar <laughs> and will then slam him under a bus if if needs be and we've seen this in the past uh, with, with Michal Martin we've mm. seen it very much seen it uh, in the recent past uh, with him he, he has no qualms about turning on somebody mm. uh, for for his own political reasons once, once it would, comes would to that point. Would he do that now even though he pointedly didn't do that in November 2020? Yeah, but he, he he's not he's not doing it for now. We'll we'll see what happens once the once there is a, a development. They can they, you can muddle along now, uh, through the summer. You get to September. You have your parliamentary party party meetings. People are are looking ahead. The focus then is is on uh, is on the budget. Once the budget is out of the way, the following day it's all about. Right, the Michal Martin era is over now. That's mm. that's his final budget. Good luck. It's now all about the reshuffle, the rotating Taoiseach, yeah. who's become a Taoiseach, sure, who's staying in the cabinet, and so on and so forth. Two months. Yeah, which, which means that it it then it almost is a sense that you don't have eight months to to get through all of this. You have six. It, it, pretty pretty much politically, we're saying. I mean, legally, the DPP can take another eighteen months yeah. if if she sees fit mm. in that regard, and she doesn't have to be influenced by this. Uh, political issue but politically it, it does it is awkward already and the closer you get to that December deadline uh, yeah. it, it gets even worse um, what, what, Aoife your, your thoughts on, on what it might mean if in the unlikely circumstance that the uh, and I say unlikely just because it happens in a minority of cases um, that the DPP directs that it would not be in the public interest it would be a very difficult act of walking on eggshells if that's what were to happen Yeah I think that'd be really interesting like you said it's only 
a very small percentage of times that that actually happens. I think you'd see a lot of debate about whether or not it actually is in the public interest. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that uh, the people involved would say that it, if that decision was made, they wholeheartedly agree with uh, the DPP's decision that it isn't. But I mean, it also, I think it look it, it raises the kind of, not questions, but like makes you look back at where the story all came from and how it broke in Village Magazine mm. and how it came from, you know, text messages and, and Chabos's kind of whistleblowing around it. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of it as well. It's like, how did this all come to light? And the fact that this article was published, it kind of created kind of firestorm around it. So I suppose when you think about whether or not it's in the public interest or not, it, it was enough for the village to run with that story. Yeah. People, there's a huge amount of interest created by those texts and you had that kind of visual um, evidence of conversations and things like that. So, I mean, I don't know specifically what might happen if that decision was made, but I think you would see a huge <coughs> amount of debate about it. Mm. At the same time, the DPP's decision is the DPP's decision yeah. and she's making it for uh, specific reason. Yeah, um, it, there's, there's an extended uh, piece here inside page three of the Sun Independent which is maybe worth reading for listeners um, which explains that it's becoming common practice for the DPP's office in high profile cases to seek outside expert legal counsel. One recent example being the murder of Dear Jacob where the state prosecutor sought the outside opinion of a senior counsel on whether there should be charges against uh, Larry Murphy. The Garda file in that instance was sent to the DPP two years ago. Garda are still awaiting a direction. Um, a well-placed source said for big cases and Mr Varadkar's case is a very big one the DPP also seeks outside legal advice on whether there is enough evidence to support a criminal charge. Again, this delays the direction from the DPP as more experts examine all the Garda evidence. In addition, the DPP all often comes back uh, to investigating Garda with a series of questions and follow-up queries before it makes a direction. It is a slow process. Um, Fiona, it's good to hear anyway that there are barristers who are not also party activists. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. Well, the, um, the, the independence of the law library If the DPP does indicate that there's nothing to prosecute, as Leo Varadkar's camp mm-hmm. evidently feel is, is going to be the direction one day or another, um, is that the end of it? Well, it isn't from a legal yeah, perspective. But, but, but politically speaking, speaking, no. I mean, he, this the, the act of leaking a document that said confidential on it mm. uh, which was worse but, but he says I decide what is privileged and what isn't and if I decide as Taoiseach that this can be shared then I'll share it well then that's fine he has to explain that to, to the public yeah. and the public well, he explained that to the doll haven't had, 2020. Yeah. haven't had a view and, and the, the the government side of the doll was happy the opposition wasn't so do, you know, are, are Fine Gael happy to go into the next general election uh, with a leader in charge who was investigated by the Gardaí for mm. for 18 months on foot of uh, an act mm. uh, which resulted in, Even if in a motion no confidence being put, being put but yeah motion no confidence being, being put down in him like you know so why did Bertie O'Hearn have to stand down in, in 2008 mm. it was it was because of the the weight being put on him uh, by the investigations uh, of by by the Mahan Tribunal, mm. at at that point nothing had been found. It would be another three years before there were findings of 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 the of the Mahan Tribunal. Yeah. So you know, people very often have to uh, the the public take a view, uh, one view maybe maybe legal systems mm. take a view. Mm. Um, David texts in actually with a similar point as I just put to you. Who decided under what legislation was the GP document actually declared confidential? And are we saying that the Taoiseach, the actual Prime Minister, cannot change that designation? Uh, that's from David to five three one zero six. Someone else says the Fine Gael leader seems to be attracting the wrong kind of attention in the last few weeks. He looks a weak leader now. And James in Wexford puts this question: Eva, just what if the Fine Gael party just decide to replace him? 
What if? Yeah. I mean, will they though? <laughs> like, I, I highly doubt it. So, uh, I mean, I mean, he survived a vote of no confidence um, over this whole thing, didn't he? So, yeah, I mean, I think that I, what I think is really interesting is that, and and it, I think it's a sign of of Leo of Leo Varga's approach to things over the last X amount of years is his confidence, you know, his kind of confidence in how he believes the whole thing was handled, how mm. he was able to say, I did this, but I didn't do this. You know, he's the kind of person who takes the criticism and is kind of able to kind of put his hand up when he wants to and then also kind of back himself when he wants to. And he survived a lot of moments of, uh, you know, of controversy. But this mm. is perhaps the ultimate moment where he re- we really have to see how he comes out of that, yeah. whether or not he's kind of damaged as a result. Even if the DPP turns around and says, no, not, you know, all grand, not going to go to trial, fine. Will there still be some sort of legacy or will he actually kind of come out of it as, you know, unscathed? I think yeah. that would be really interesting. He is kind of quite Teflon, I do feel, when it comes to these sort of things generally. So Except with the public. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. given yeah. given the last general election yeah. result, it would suggest that he's yeah. not entirely yeah, Teflon. I mean, he's made money, he's making his way through happily yeah. there, uh, you know. Possibly an academic question for now, but maybe it is something to come up and I'll go to a break after this. Um, just the, the mechanics of it, Fiona, because remember that the last time that there was a vacancy in 2017, it took a couple of months to, to fill the vacancy that Enda Kenny left behind as Fine Gael leader and the same mechanisms are there right now. So if the job was to be contested, then actually you'd need to have a new leader if Leo Varadkar had to be replaced one way or another. Um, you'd almost need to get the whole process underway by October in order to have a new leader in situ in time for December the 15th. That's where men in grey suits come in to tap people on the shoulder and go... Not your time to run, Mr. Harris. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, I said that out loud. Sorry, Ms. Ms. McEntee. The other, the other side of it is, is, is we're going to slap him in straight away. Yeah. So yeah, that that depends upon on you know a vacancy when it happens. Is that is that contested and, yeah. and where does that that go go from there? Uh, we will wait to see uh, exactly what comes of that. But now the ball very much in the court of the DPP. So we'll wait to see. You exactly could always leave this guy in place who's currently the most popular leader in the country, though, as, as Taoiseach for, yeah. for a bit longer. But of know? course, he says he's bound by the programme for government and that requires him to leave in December well, 15th. You know, you so he could couldn't possibly just that. leave that now. <laughs> um, today is election day in France. And it is fair to say that the future of the European Union may well be on the line because if Marine Le Pen were to be elected as President of France, then she isn't necessarily saying that she wants to take France out of the European Union, but she does want to make French law supreme to that of the European Union, which would fatally undermine uh, the way in which the whole bloc runs. Uh, we are joined on the line by Florence Villemineau, uh, who is French Connections Editor with France 24. Florence, thanks for, for talking to us today. Um, we're in a bit of a, a campaign blackout period, a sort of a, a moratorium. Um, how are things looking in the middle of this blackout period? Willie, that's right. We're in what they call the silence électoral. So uh, as French journalists, we're actually not allowed to (laughs) give any polls uh, ahead of the final uh, result that comes out at 8 p.m. this evening. Um, What it was looking like before this period uh, is that there is a a gap between uh, Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron, um, about 10 points, uh, but that's close. And uh, of course, everyone is thinking about previous uh, examples where polls didn't always get it right, for instance, the uh, Trump election in the US or even Brexit. So uh, so people are talking about those numbers cautiously. Uh, and indeed, even the candidates are quite cautious about uh, their positions. Um, I've been following Marine Le Pen, who is very confident that she's closing the gap and that it could be a very, very tight race uh, when the final result comes in. Um, as you say, you've been following her uh, with your role in, in France 24. What's been her sort of pitch to people this time around? And, and how has it been different to the platform that she brought forward five years ago? Well, she, she certainly has uh, 
changed a lot um, in the five years since the previous election, um, on the surface at least. Uh, she's really catered her campaign this time around to uh, issues on social, on you know, social issues, particularly purchasing power. She's really positioned herself as the candidate uh, that's close to uh, struggling French people um, and vowing to reduce the cost of living, to uh, you know reduce taxes, to reduce even income taxes for young people. She's positioned herself really on social issues and kind of overshadowing some of her other messages on immigration and security, which she still talks about, but she's definitely putting that uh, on the on the back foot compared to trying to be the candidate um, for purchasing power. That's really her, her message. But if you really dig deeper into her program, it's very similar to her program five years ago. She's still a very populist candidate, a far right candidate, even though she herself is saying she's not a far right candidate. She's trying to position herself as a mainstream candidate. But on issues of immigration, uh, you know, she wants to hold a referendum. That would be one of her first measures if she were elected president was would be to hold a referendum on immigration um, and on Islam. For instance, she says that she wants to ban the headscarf um, in public places if she's elected. So she still has these very controversial right wing positions. But mm. if you've heard her on the campaign, it's all about purchasing power. And that's indeed what people I've talked to on the campaign. That's the message that they're they're wanting to hear. I was all up and down France mm. and, and everyone is saying their main concern in this election is purchasing power. Um, and so she's definitely uh, answering those concerns. So if she has added then this sort of domestic sense of politics, this real, um, you know, bringing it home to your household, making sure that you have a better quality of life, if that's now part of her platform as well, how has uh, President Macron responded to that? Or has he tried to move into that ground himself? Because obviously, if all those issues now are, are present issues for French voters, they have emerged under his presidency. So he, he must seem a bit vulnerable on those. He certainly has. And that, that, that's been his main challenge uh, in, in this campaign, is how to defend his track record over the fa past five years. One thing he's been saying, <clears throat> first of all, he's been attacking Marine Le Pen's program, just saying that all these are all these things are empty promises. How would she pay for this program? You know, it's one thing to promise people that, you know, they'll get 200 euros in their, in their extra every month, but how do you actually pay for that? How do you pay for a reduction in the TVA, which is what one, one other thing she's promised. So he's, he's trying to, first of all, prove that her program is just, unfeasible in terms of, you know, a, a, a national budget, and also tried to defend his track record and saying, look, um, if, if, if things are as they are right now, it's also because there was, you know, the COVID crisis. And one thing that, the, that Michael did as president was say, whatever the cost, we're going to defend, uh, we're going to defend business owners and workers and help them get back to work. Um, and indeed, if you look at the statistics, unemployment is lower than when he came into power. So things are relatively okay, but there's this sense uh, in France that things are worse. Uh, mm. And this might just be a French trait to, to even when things are good, think that they're not so great, but there is definitely this, this sense of, of fear, uh, you know, with inflation going up as well, you know, that there, people are, are on, on, on edge. And so, um, yeah, Macron has been, I think he's trying to, to defend himself, but then, you know, incumbents in France always have a hard time. Uh, mm. uh, people tend to uh, love to hate their presidents and that's definitely something that's come out in this campaign sure. is just uh, how much a lot of French people just can't stand the president um, you know whether that's rational or not that's what a lot of people feel yeah of course it's 20 years since the last time that a French president was able to get elected for a second term so he's really trying to go exactly. against the grain as far as that goes um, talk to me about the, the votes that that did belong to the guy who came third in the first round two weeks ago this is Jean-Luc Mélenchon who might be described as something of a hard left candidate um, Macron might like to perceive himself as a centrist but maybe 
his opponents would see him as you know to the leaning to the right. Marine Le Pen is obviously far right. So I guess then there's a big question as to where those people who chose a far left candidate will actually go in the final round. That really is the big question. There's the what it, what are Mélenchon voters going to vote in the second round, and what are you know there was a high abstention rate as well. Is that going? Are we going to see that um, in the second round? Those are the two key questions. Mélenchon's vote is really interesting because <clears throat> I think a lot of people on the left um, ended up going gravitating towards Mélenchon. Um, so he got he got a considerable you know he got seven point seven million votes, twenty two percent of the vote. That's that's huge. I think a lot of that. Um, is due to you know socialists or, or or everyone seeing him as the real chance to making it to the second round. So I don't know if, if those 7.7 million are only Mélenchon voters, but there is still a sizable part of the French population that is drawn to the far left. And what's interesting is in France, there, traditionally, there's been this coalition in a second round to block the far right. It's called the Front Républicain. It worked for Macron in the previous election in the sense that you know people did go out and vote for him, even if they didn't, you know, support him just to block the far, far right. And the question is, is are we going to see that in this election? A lot of people just don't believe it exists anymore. Even the president, Macron, he says the Front Républicain doesn't exist anymore. People aren't going to try and block the far right. So it'll be really interesting to see what those Mélenchon uh, voters do. I've spoken to some of them. Some of them have told me that they absolutely want to block the far right, so they will vote for Macron. Others are just not going to vote at all. Uh, we will find out what happens at uh, 7 o'clock this evening when polls close at uh, 7 o'clock Irish time and then we find out exactly how France has gone. Florence Vimano, thank you very much for joining us today and on the record that's Florence Vimano, who is the French Connections Editor at France 24 Television. She's been covering the Marine Le Pen campaign uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, still joined in the studio by Fiona Sheehan, uh, Ireland Editor of the Irish Independent and by Aoife Barry of the Journal.ie. Aoife, you've picked out a piece in uh, one of today's papers which has uh, an, a useful illustration of what feeling is like on the ground in France. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and uh, no bias here, it's in the Sunday Independent. <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to just happened to pick it out. Um, yeah, it's the Katie Lee went to Nice, went to the French Riviera to have a chat with people, and I just thought all the quotes in it really kind of sum up the varying opinions that people have. You know, you've one person, Giselle Milali, who says certainly Marine Le Pen is not a perfect candidate, but she's better than him. Um, and another person who described Macron as like the kid who's always top of the class. I just find him unbearable, which is obviously a big issue yeah. that Macron kind of comes up against. How he comes across that he's you know kind of like the rich president, mm. or the president of the rich that he is. See, you know, kind of comes across is the guy who like you know uh, doesn't reach out to the ordinary person which is what Marine Le Pen has been kind of capitalising on um, then on the other side you have someone who says here um, uh, Mr Wagner saying I think France under Le Pen would be completely ungovernable you know taking a look at her manifesto but I'm still going to vote for her out of spite um, mostly out of spite <laughs> wow. so you have that idea of like well, I, you know I don't want Macron yeah. so the only way to block Macron is to vote for Le Pen yeah. um, but the final I thought the final paragraph kind of sums up things too um, it says the problem with the French according to one person she spoke to the problem with the French says this person is that we are eternally dissatisfied um, we're really not aware of how lucky we are particularly down here down here mm. being in the French Riviera yeah. where of course they have I'm sure very lovely lives yes. while trying to decide and who where to where vote for where they can for. retire at age 62 exactly yes, yes. Yeah. every time I hear that age I just kind of you know feel very sad inside yeah. although that's uh, presumably going to set, set to change if Macron um, uh, continues in power Fiona it, it sort of seems like one way or another that it's a recipe for a very unhappy country if the eventual president only had the, the real support like in, in the first round of under 30% of the actual voters. Yeah, but he he is a, a kind of indefinable candidate. He emerged from pretty much nowhere, a, a mix of left, right, 
down down the centre, mm. now being cha- challenged by a far right candidate five years ago, but now being challenged by a far right candidate who is also trying to appeal the factory to the far left, mm. but not really getting too far in, in that regard. So it's a recast uh, version of, of Marine Le Pen and Macron working off the back of his, his record, which hasn't been insignificant, but probably mm. hasn't gone as far as, as, as he would have wished yeah. in his economic reforms over <laughs> the last five years. So from our perspective, it is of massive significance, yeah. though, because... Um, well, because we she ultimately, she's she's not putting this label on it anymore, but she's still in substance in favour of Brexit. She wants mm-hmm. like you know, um, immigration yeah. should be more, much more dramatically limited in ways that the EU doesn't really allow you to do. She wants the supremacy of French law over European law. She wants a certain amount of trade isolationism. Doesn't want global trade. Wants people to shop mm. French for French products. A lot of which is incompatible with being a member of the EU, and which would basically be the slow journey towards taking France out. Yeah, but in, in the meantime, you, you wouldn't have an immediate Frexit referendum or anything like, like that, but what you would have would be effectively a, a blockage in the system in the EU at, at a time when there is now question marks about the direction of which the EU is going. Mm. Uh, do they need to, to be more in tune with the needs of the of those uh, on its, its eastern end? Whose concerns now are very uh, military based around the, the 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 threat posed by Russia. So therefore, does the, the the where the EU needs to go next is that in terms of more military cooperation, along with more economic cooperation, and you have an opportunity, I suppose, tomorrow with a very pro-European French president coming in saying, "Well, I have a, a renewed mandate here mm. uh, to to take a lead," or the alternative being somebody who would not be, yeah. uh, be would be utterly un- uncooperative with, with the system. Uh, somebody told me before, Aoife, that I think in the, in the first round of the French election, because there's a full open slate of candidates that you can vote with your heart, but that second time around you sort of have to vote with your head. But yeah. that kind of does, does beg the question that if, if most of the country doesn't actually want the person who ends up winning the election, yeah. then you're going to have, in, in a time where there's huge concern around purchasing power and, and we're not too long after the GA John and everything mm. else, it's going to be a very rocky time for whoever does get the job. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, for Macron, there's definitely learnings there in terms of like the discussions around how he interacts with voters, you know, that in recent weeks they've been saying he's become a bit more friendly, that like the frother is breaking down, he's kind of kissing people on the cheek in ways that he wasn't. So he's clearly listening to what people are saying about him in terms of how he presents himself, which then you would hope that if if people agree with, with his new presentation, that they might believe he's making decisions that are the best for them especially like you're saying post uh, Gilets jaunes although you know they haven't gone away um, uh, but I think it's going to be interesting I mean it, it looks like uh, it looks like Macron will, will you know it's kind of his for the taking but if Le Pen you know got into power what would she do considering you know the promises that she is making the kind of you know the kind of economic promises that she is making and whether or not that that will all kind of add up if she actually gets into the role mm-hmm. um, the fact that she is kind of capitalising like if you know what I'm saying people on the left and the right have maybe similar concerns and she's speaking to the people about the cost of living crisis that is really affecting people and she's saying all the right things but whether or not she would actually would actually be able to make decisions that people would agree with mm. um, on that level um, or just be able to make those decisions I think would all, would all yeah. come out in the wash and So, of course it is worth remembering that there's, there's parliamentary elections next month as well so even whoever the, the president is if it were to be Marine Le Pen she'd mm. still need to get a decent clatter of, of uh, National Rally uh, exactly. MPs elected yeah. next month which won't be easy either um, Alan and Lucan uh, points out very sagely you know I'm talking about uh, a, a government or a president that you like the least or that you hate the least um, he says surely our Taoiseach only has a similar support in any government Government because PRSTV is designed to give you the government that most people hate the least. <laughs> well, come December, we'll be electing a 
a teacher could be appointed yeah. who only got one in five of the votes in the country in the general election mm. two years ago which means you know four. of course in 2020 we elected a teacher that only got about one in four of the votes in the country yeah, anyway yeah, so, yeah, yeah slightly, that's what happens. just slightly more um, the, we do have to take another break but actually there's still lots of texts and tweets coming in about uh, the, the stance of the D, DPP uh, I was going to say the DUP there. we'll talk about that some other Sunday maybe this, this isn't the right one um, but that there, there are a lot of people are sort of raising questions as to whether the DPP having been appointed by the government is answerable to the government and whether that would then cloud any sense of judgment they have about whether there should be a prosecution against Leo Varadkar. It's very important we're feeling that the DPP is not appointed by the government, obviously, as, as most public jobs are, but is not answerable to the government. No, it, it is an independent role uh, within the, the legal system. There is, it's a bit like the Hippocratic oath that, that doctors take mm. to, to treat any patients in their in their best interests, uh, it is similar in, in the legal system that that people uh, honourably take up roles like this and and carry them out in the best interest uh, of of the public. Mm. Uh, and I I don't think there's you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't start questioning the the, the independence of the, of the mm. DPP here. Uh, Meg has been on such a Twitter to say outrageous promotion of Marine Le Pen. Are you being paid? I'm absolutely horrified. Um, no, Meg, just talking about someone who has at least forty three percent of support of French voters and somebody who could be uh, wielding a significant influence over Europe uh, before this day is out. Still have Fiona Sheehan of the Irish Independent and Eva Barry of the Journal uh, both fretting uh, at length off air that they have now come across as shills uh, from Marine Le Pen. Uh, sure, that absolutely wasn't the case um, as I say it is 11.47 uh, a lot of coverage on the front pages of today's papers uh, Aoife about concern around uh, how we are now going to continue to accommodate Ukrainian refugees given that we have pretty much exhausted a lot of readily available housing and also a quite interesting poll about whether people actually think there should be a cap on the numbers coming in. Yeah, really interesting stories today about it. Um, if you look at the Sunday Times, um, basically the gov- it says here, uh, Stephen O'Brien's uh, lead story, the government has identified 100 unused properties that include uh, former convents and hospitals that could house up to 4,000 Ukrainian refugees within weeks. Um, we know this is something that's been rumbling on the last number of weeks as the invasion of Ukraine continues with kind of no end in sight and obviously people desperately needing to, to flee and a lot of people, you know, so 25,000 people come over to Ireland already, you know, needing accommodation, you know, shouldn't be like sleeping at length on uh, uh, camp beds, for example, in, mm. in temporary places we've had to set up. Um, but, but to try and deal with all of this, it says here as well that the government's actually going to restructure its departments to speed up the allocation of housing, which I thought was a really interesting mm. move forward. And this is all happening while that, that poll you were saying there was carried out, which said that three out of five people believe there should be a cap on the amount of Ukrainian refugees coming into Ireland. Mm. But two out of five said there shouldn't um, and about one in three about 35% of people felt that cap should be at 20,000 but we already know we've exceeded that by, yeah. by 5,000 and one in four said it should be between 20,000 and 40 and 11% said there should be a cap of up to 60,000 and I also feel kind of uncomfortable when you're talking about caps on the number of people who are fleeing a country that's been invaded uh, yeah. by Russia you're talking about people I mean it's kind of similar discussion when you talk about quote illegal immigrants and the idea of well is a person actually illegal and I feel like when you're asking how many people should be allowed should we be allowed to bring in it kind of reduces humans down to just numbers mm. at the same time 
because we have a lot of people coming into Ireland and we are trying to deal with it, the reason why the government is setting, you know, restructuring its departments, desperately trying to deal with trying to get housing here, it does show that Ireland obviously wasn't prepared for something like this. I mean, I suppose who could be? Um, but also there, it does raise questions about the fact that some of the decisions being made, could they have been made earlier to deal with our existing housing crisis mm. in Ireland or homelessness crisis in Ireland too? Yeah, yeah um, which is a very salient point and one yeah. which we regularly see uh, mentioned on being social raised, media yeah. and we discuss this as well. Um, Fiona, I think the thing that strikes me most about the the BNA poll that there's now a majority of people who want to cap is that maybe it's the first illustration of how uh, when the rubber meets the road that the the generosity in principle that a lot of people might have been willing to extend isn't actually there when it comes to practice. Yeah, do we want to send a letter to Mr. Putin and saying we'd like no more refugees, please? I mean, it's just not the reality. So people would prefer that these people would be sleeping in tents on the side of the road in a field on, a, on the Ukrainian-Polish border than having mm. somewhere somewhere to go. So we are part of the European Union. It's not as if we are taking uh, more than our, our fair share. It's, they're actually, you know, numbers are, are being allocated across um, the EU in terms of the numbers that, that you, you should be, be taking. Uh, other countries have closer to the Ukraine are, are taking a, a larger proportion of people. But yeah, the, the point a couple of weeks ago was there was a window here in terms of finding accommodation in people's homes and so on that people would come forward with, with offers and you needed to act rapidly upon that. And we're now seeing reports coming back that really that process is is turning out to be pretty slow, mm. that offers aren't really being taken up. There's a kind of vetting issue in place. And that then is feeding into uh, the the lead story in the in the business post where there's this talk of uh, appointing uh, some sort of oversight body. Now, yeah, potentially giving the Department of Housing more centralised powers to be able to, to do all this. Which, which kind of strikes one as being, you know, a, a, a lack of political responsibility when you're talking about bringing in somebody else to do the job. I mean, yeah. is there a minister in charge of this or not? And if well, there is, is a, if there is a point Gorman, person, he's the minister responsible well, for integration. Well, so then, it's supposed to be him. T- t- well, then take care of it. Well, then he's the one who has to go knocking on the door of the Department of Housing with the authority of the, of the Taoiseach uh, and saying this is this is what we need to to un- undertake. And if you need to set up a cabinet committee or a task force around that, then do so. But there should mm. be a political person at the top. A fellow called Richard Bruton came along a decade ago and said, we're going to create 100,000 jobs. Yeah. Uh, he had he called it his action plan for jobs. He set up a subcommittee. Uh, he sat at the top table and he had other ministers around the table. And when people weren't doing their job, the Taoiseach would turn up and say, well, why hasn't that been done? And it, it got done fairly mm. fast. So if the Taoiseach is backing the, the line minister to undertake whatever tasks need to be done here, mm. well, then that that should be enough uh, to do it. Wh- We're kind of back into that territory yeah. of the. Do you remember eighteen months ago? Oh, we need a minister for COVID. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. We need the Department of Health. So once upon a time we needed a minister for Brexit, but actually what we needed was the entire government because yeah. it was that big a thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're in similar circumstances now. Uh, we hadn't intended to discuss this, but I'm just struck by something which has just popped up in my Twitter stream in the last couple of minutes. And we were talking about this all fair, um, about a story in one of today's British newspapers which suggests that a prominent Labour frontbench MP, as the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, had been using... Uh, what I can only describe uh, this hour of the day is fairly underhanded tactics uh, reminiscent of Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct, if that's a tactic that means anything to anyone, uh, to try and unserve or, uh, or um, un- unsettle 
uh, Boris Johnson uh, in the front bench of the House of Commons. Um, Boris Johnson has tweeted uh, in the last few minutes to say, as much as I disagree with Angela Rayner on almost every political issue, I respect her as a parliamentarian and deplore the misogyny directed at her anonymously today, uh, which is, I'm sure is a statement which would carry a little more favour Word not word for word exactly what Nadine Dorries, the Trade and Culture Secretary, has also said because she says as much as I disagree with Angela Rayner on almost every political issue, I respect her as a parliamentarian and deplore the misogyny directed at her anonymously today. Um, Aoife, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but we were talking about this during the yeah. ad break, and it's um, it, it's it's a pretty incendiary piece in today's Mail on Sunday. It's Britain, just it? I just think it's actually appalling. I kind of feel sick that this is the sort of stuff that's being written about politicians, female politicians. We know that there is always like a dearth of female politicians across the world anyway. Um, and the idea that as a woman and a politician, you can be sitting there and be treated according to this article like a sex object. So yeah. the idea is that Angela Rayner is sitting there as a woman, but she's not just a politician first. She is a sexual object first. And that means that any other male politician that looks at her automatically sees her as a sex object and not as a woman who's doing her job. Mm. I actually can't believe it's like 2022 and we're reading articles like this in newspapers. I know given the, the publication that it's in, perhaps it's not that surprising. Um, if I was her, I'd be, I can't even imagine how offended yeah. she is about it. It's obviously offensive to Boris Johnson suggesting that he can only see her as kind of a lump of... yeah. Meat sitting which, there. which is why you, you sort of wonder then how some sources apparently speaking on behalf of or close to Boris Johnson managed to tell the Mail on Sunday that this was a concern or that, that to concoct this allegation in the first place. I mean, I, I feel like the fact that she is the kind of the person that's been focused on here is if she's like kind of maybe deliberately doing this thing or that he's deliberately looking at her in this way. It's it's just like I can't believe that people were sitting around uh, you know a conference table or whatever in a meeting room mm. and talking about it and agreeing that this is a sort of story that they want to, to put across because whatever way you look at it it makes her out to be the person who by just by dint of existing is creating this issue by being there in the first place whether or not it was something that they're alleging she decided to do or that he is looking at her in that way mm. um, I think it's just it's gross to be honest and I actually yeah kind of feel a bit uh, yeah it's gross nauseous yeah. nauseous, nauseous really. yeah. it also t- distracts entirely from the fact that she was highly effective in questioning mm. Boris Johnson yeah. doing Keir Starmer's exactly. the, the, the piece says that uh, this is a tactic she has apparently been using because she cannot compete with Oxford Union debating skills I think most impartial observers would question that analysis a blundering uh, bumpkin against her is, is you know she's uh, far trying, out of, yeah, of, of yeah trying to make her look stupid like she's just a yeah. sex object I we, mean really yeah we are completely out of time and thanks to both of you for coming in this morning Aoife Barry is assistant news editor at the journal.ie and Fionn Sheehan is the Ireland editor at the Irish Independent On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.